So you are listening to WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker. This is Too Much Information. And tonight we have a very exciting show. Our guest today is the author Brendan Kerner, whose new book, The Skies Belongs to Us, comes out tomorrow, I believe. It's a wonderfully written book. We have a link up to it on the playlist page at WFMU.org, where you can find uh, all the information to that. I couldn't put it down myself. Not only do we get a number of amazing stories about hijackers and their misadventures, but it's also a great portrait of an era, the late 60s, early 70s, when air travel was completely different. Let's see if I've got the technology working here. Are you there, Brendan? I'm here. Wonderful. All right. So thanks again for coming on the program. Welcome to WFMU. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So the book comes out tomorrow, right? It does, yep. All right. Very, very, very exciting. So we've become so used to dealing with the humiliations of, of air travel. You know, we go to the airport and we hand over our shoes, our clothes, our dignity. But in the, the late 60s, uh, you know, where this book begins, it seems that things were totally different. Uh, in fact, some airports almost had no security. You have this one story of a hijacker who rides his bicycle through a hole in a fence. Yep. Can, can you set the scene for us? You know, what were airports like? In this uh, era. Sure. Well, actually, I would say the vast majority had no security or, or, or very, very minimal. Um, the situation was initially, before these hijackings began, there really was no security. Um, you could literally walk from the curbside all the way to your gate. Um, didn't show anyone a ticket or an ID or anything at all. Um, and then you did have these, you know, some hijackings in the early to mid-60s um, and about, you know, 68 or 69. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got a little more serious about it. They didn't, you know, put in universal metal detectors or, or baggage screen, anything like that. What they did is the FAA came up with a secret behavioral profile that their chief psychologist concocted. And this was basically a checklist of behaviors um, that were supposed to be indicative of potential skyjackers. And what they did was they asked the ticket agent to give every, pa- every traveler the once-over, just a visual once-over. And if any of those travelers fit any of these behavioral um, bullet points, then they would be, you know, beckoned aside for to be swept with a metal detector, provided that they uh, could not show valid photo ID. They had the option of not doing the search if the traveler had valid photo oh, ID. Oh, man. And they actually designed this profile to only apply to um, three out of every 1,000 travelers, ideally. Um, they really did not want to search a lot of people because they felt that the spectacle of people being swept metal detectors and the hassle that people would have to go through if it was too many people, people would choose to drive instead of fly and would ruin their business. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll come back to, to some of the reasons, you know, you know, and the intransience of, of the airline industry and, and this profile. But, you know, one of the things I loved about your book is that it's also a portrait not only of these individuals, some of these uh, infamous hijackers, but it's a portrait of an era. And it ends in 72, 73, I guess, when the FAA finally enforces these, you know, what we now know as normal security procedures. But I'm curious if you could talk about what the starting date for you is. Is it the first skyjacking or, or is there somewhere else? Where does the story begin for you? Um, for me, I really try to bracket it with what I see as I call the skyjacking epidemic in America. And so the first one was in 1961. Um, but really, there was a, a lot of fallow years in there where there's a few skyjackings. Um, so for me, the real heart of the story is between about 1968 and 1972, mm-hmm. which perhaps not coincidentally um, you know, coincides with a pretty chaotic time in American history when there's obviously a lot of opposition to the Vietnam War, um, a lot of veterans returning, um, and a lot of anger and unresolved issues around that, um, a lot of dissatisfaction with the fact that the civil rights movement had taken kind of a dark turn with assassinations. So there was a lot of anger yeah. kind of you know, bubbling under the surface of American life at that time. And this is one outlet people had um, to express that anger was through hijacking planes. Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, I, I think because of 9-11 and because, you know, our, our vague uh, knowledge of our own history, I would say that most people think back to this, you know, the hijacking and think of an, thinking of it as a political act. And you, you talk about some of the most famous politically minded skyjackers like Leela Khalid. Like, who, who was she and, and what did she want? Sure. So she was a commando for the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, um, the PFLP. And she 
pulled off a hijacking um, where she basically hijacked a plane with an associate to Syria, and they blew up the cockpit of the plane. And the Syrians held her for a while, then released her. And famously, shortly after her release, uh, a photographer, a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer named Eddie Adams, who did a lot of work in Vietnam, took these kind of glamour shots of her, um, posing with her AK-47 and wearing a... Uh, she wore a ring fashioned from a bullet uh, on her on her ring finger on her left hand. And she said it meant she was engaged to the revolution. So she was this really glamorous, Serious. radical, chic kind of character. Um, and after that, she actually um, had six plastic surgeries to completely redo her face and tried to hijack another plan. It didn't work out as well for her the second time. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I, I think one, one of the things I was, I was really fascinated to learn was that this idea that, you know, because of people like her, that so many of these hijackers were sort of, you know, politics first, or these were all political acts or politically motivated even, maybe in a few of the high profile ones. But you seem to make it clear that politics wasn't exactly the driving factor. Yeah, that, that, that surprised me in my research. I found that a lot of these hijackings were motivated by you know, personal grievances people had and, and personal, you know, psychodramas people were going through. Um, you obviously had a lot of mentally ill people doing this. Um, just like today, you have a lot of mentally ill people doing mass shootings. Um, uh -huh. This is a way that people acted out then, um, the mentally ill, often the untreated schizophrenics, um, etc. Um, but a lot of people who had just kind of personal grievances against a boss, or their family or the government would do this. Um, I talk about people who had tax bills they were upset with, people who felt they'd been stiffed by their paymaster in the army. Um, there are all sorts of personal reasons people have. They might put on a, a veneer, a facade of a political motivation, but a lot of times the real reason was something much more intensely personal. Sure, sure. And these personal, you know, grievances could could play out, you know, uh, you know, I guess in the best case scenario. Uh, like it did for Raphael uh, Minicello, is that how you say his name? Yeah, Minicello. Uh, yeah, one of my favorite characters from the book. Me he too. <laughs> yeah, he was an Italian-American Marine, actually. Uh, born in Italy, came here as a teen to Seattle and enlisted in the Marines, earned a Purple Heart in Vietnam, and came back and got in this dispute over $200 that he thought the Marines had stiffed him on his salary. And so he ended up... Um, burglarizing a post exchange at his base and, when was, and took exactly $200 worth of goods out of watches and other items, thinking this was a way to obtain justice. They, they, they robbed 200 from him and they robbed 200 from them. <laughs> uh, he ends up being court-martialed and dealt with it by uh, actually um, hijacking a plane to Rome, um, to his native country, where he yeah. thought that people would appreciate the fact that this was a grave affront to his honor the fact that the, uh, the Marines had stiffed him on this money, and he became a big folk hero in Italy, and yeah, actually yeah. still lives there to this day. Yeah, but back up. So, you know, it's one thing to say, like, all right, I'm out of here. The, you know, this country is not, you know, respecting. It has no honor. It's another thing to successfully make it to Rome. How did he, how did he pull that off? Um, well, he boarded a plane, a L.A. to San Francisco flight, with a disassembled M1 rifle and 250 rounds of ammunition in his carry-on bag. Uh, like I said, there was absolutely no security screening at all. Just walked right onto the plane. And um, this was a time, you know, prior to Minichello's hijacking, that the only thing American hijackers had done was take planes to Cuba. This is a thing happening all the time. Yeah. Take me to Cuba, take me to Cuba. Minichello says, well, take me, to, take me to Italy, take me to Rome. And this is a completely novel demand. No one's ever done this before. Um, but the policy of the airline was total compliance. Their philosophy was, as long as no one gets hurt, yeah. when we get the plane back, that's all that matters to us. So we'll take you anywhere you want to go. So I'm going to Rome. I'm going to Italy in a few months. Can I really find this guy? He had like a pizzeria called The Hijacking or something he like did, that? He did. He did. He actually lives, I believe, uh, really close to his native village um, near Naples. And he actually has a YouTube <laughs> channel, um, if you want to Google him, where he records local folk musicians playing songs on the accordion. So you yeah. can actually track him down. I don't know. I don't think he likes Americans too much. Uh, but, um, I forgot about that. Give it a try. <laughs> I, I could pose as Canadian. I, I, that's worked before. <laughs> but, you know, so he ends up as a folk hero, but many, many of the hijackers you profile in your book do not end up with right. any of this glory or a pizzeria. In fact, they end up dead. Some get shot by FBI snipers. Others don't seem to understand the mechanics of jumping out of a plane with a parachute and a bag filled with money. Yep. Um, can you talk about some of these characters? Uh, like, who was the guy that started the whole parachute thing? Yeah, so he was a Canadian. Um, his name was Paul Joseph 
Vinny. He was actually, um, had been in the Army in Canada and become an alcoholic uh, after getting out of the Army. Had a lot of problems with jobs, losing jobs, financial problems. And so he was drinking in his apartment one day and watching a news report about a failed hijacking. And he had this, you know, vodka-fueled eureka moment of like, well, maybe the way to get away is to jump out of the plane. (laughs) And so he actually did a lot of, he was afraid of heights, um, but he said, if I drink enough, I can get over that. And so he took a flight, an Air Canada flight, and he actually said that he was a member of the Irish Republican Army and wanted $1.5 million in passage to Ireland to join his revolutionary comrades. Uh, He settled for $50,000, which he got in Montana. And then they were going over Alberta, and he uh, asked them to open the door so he could jump out of the plane. Um, Unfortunately, he had tied the package containing his parachute far too tightly, and because he was drunk, he couldn't couldn't open it. Um, He asked one of the pilots to hand him something sharp to cut, cut it open. Pal handed him an axe. Uh, Paul Joseph Sinney unfortunately put down his weapon and the, uh, the pilot grabbed another pilot to smash him over the head with the axe and that yeah. was the end of that yeah yeah uh, it, is, it does seem that sort of a lot of these were foiled by just plain incompetence um, but you know your book is built around the story of or based around on the story of, of two hijackers Roger Holder and Kathy Kirkow if I'm saying her name correctly I don't want you to tell the whole story here because folks should just go out and, and get the book to, to learn all the whole thing but if you could introduce these two for us and I'm especially interested in, in learning about what it was about this story that, that sort of fo- draw, drew your focus Sure, well I can tell you exactly what it was um, the thumbnail version is that I first got interested in this golden age of hijacking and I read a piece in 2009 about one of these hijackers who had been living in Cuba for 41 years in exile after hijacking a plane and had decided to come back to the U.S. voluntarily after all that time. He actually had a wife and daughter he had left behind in the States uh, when he hijacked the plane and I was just kind of amazed um, just the concept um, that someone could hijack a plane and be on the run for 41 years and kind of interested in this whole era of hijacking. Um, so I was looking at a bunch of, of you know, these hijackings, and, and for some reason, this one, this one name, Catherine Murakirko, jumped out at me. I think part of it was that she was a woman. This is mostly a, a male pursuit, hijacking, and that she was from a small town in Oregon, which also I found very interesting. Um, you didn't see a lot of, you know, mostly hijackers from big cities, New York, places like that. But she was from a small town in Oregon, and the deal was she was from this town, Cruz Bay. She was 20 years old at the time of the hijacking, just a, a, a very ordinary, young, college-age woman um, living in San Diego at the time who met this man named Roger Holder. Um, Willie Roger Holder was his full name, and he was a Vietnam vet who had gone AWOL after doing four tours in Nam and was living in San Diego, um, actually under an assumed name at that time, Lytton Charles White. And they met, and through um, some rather bizarre circumstances, decided to hijack a plane to help free the imprisoned black radical Angela Davis. Yeah. And, <laughs> and uh, things, their, their whole plan was to take, you know, hijack a plane and uh, exchange the passengers for Angela Davis and a somewhat sizable amount of money and then take Angela Davis and the money to North Vietnam. Yeah, which um, is not what happens. They end- not know things. Like you said, um, things tended to go awry in these. Um, in fact, you know, these hijackers often plan very, very well, but you know, because a lot of them, were, you know, they're not master criminals, mm-hmm. and a lot of them are having going through manic episodes or, or just not attentive to detail. They would miss key details that would kind of unravel their plans, and that's certainly what happened in the case of uh, Roger Holder and Kathy Kirko. Yeah, well, Roger and Kathy end up uh, really blowing uh, uh, the whole idea of where you can take a plane uh, in, uh, open because they decide to go to... Yeah, they decide to go to Algeria. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and this was <laughs> the, the first, first right? That had ever happened, and that's, that's, that's quite a distance from... They, they started off the day in San Diego and ended up in Algeria... Yeah, well, you're gonna have to read the book for folks uh, uh, who who who, who want to hear the whole story about that one. Our guest today is uh, Brendan Kerner, who is the author of "The Skies Belong to Us," uh, a book ab- about the golden age of hijacking. But let's let's come back to this plan that Roger had here to free Angela Davis. Again, this kind of comes back to this 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 idea that they were 
kind of politically motivated. On the surface, it seems that this was about politics, but she kind of wanted nothing to do with this. It was just some grand statement. At the end of the day, it was kind of grandstanding, something that you know many of the hijackers you profile have in common. And, and, I'm, and I'm curious like, how, how this leads to the profile. You, you, you brought this up earlier. There's this profile that they make about these individuals. And I'm, I'm curious if you could say a bit more about it. Like, did they take into account that there were politically motivated individuals and then there were disturbed individuals? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this was the problem with the profile, right? But ultimately, it wasn't totally effective. Um, you know, there, there were, you know, it's still secret to this day. So I actually kind of like, you know, do some research and I got some, I got some quotes about what's in it. There are things like eye contact, um, not knowing what's in, you know, not really caring or knowing what's in your bag. Um, wait, wait, wait a minute. It's secret to this day? It's secret to this day. In fact, there's a court case establishing that if it's going to be discussed in open court, the court has, to, the courtroom has to be cleared. So it's actually still secret. Um, I, I have a few, you know, bullet points in the book where I talk about some things we do know about it. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a roster of about two dozen behavioral tip-offs that are supposed to identify skyjackers. <sighs> yeah. Um, you know, I think the problem, though, it, it, it wasn't really all that effective. And you can say that's because, you know, it was flawed by design or because you put it in the hands of ticket agents who are not trained security personnel. And if they're processing, yeah. you know, thousands of passengers, they're bound to, to miss a few people along the way. Um, so ultimately, the, you know, that approach did, did not pan out in terms of stopping the epidemic. Yeah, so our guest today is uh, Brendan Kerner. You can give him a call. You can give us a call at 201-209-9368 if there's something you want to know about the grand age of hijackings or just something you want to ask about uh, hijacking, the hijacking epidemic of the late 60s, early 70s. Or you can go online to the Accu play playlist page at WFMU. Dot org. Now, you just used the word epidemic earlier, uh, Brendan. In fact, many of the, uh, the folks, the pilots and authorities you quote seem to, to like this idea of there being viral patterns to this story. Mm -hmm. But it seems to go beyond like the, what we would say, like something like a copycat phenomenon. It's, it's almost like hijacking becomes a way of defining yourself, <laughs> like bell-bottoms or, or long hair. What, what do you think was so contagious about this idea? I think the one thing, it, it's really hard to string together people with different motivations. Um, people, if you ask them, and there were studies done where they would ask hijackers, why'd you do that? And they came up with a zillion different reasons. But a lot of it came down to desperation. But the one common thread I identified um, in reading the stories of these hijackers is that all of them thought they had no other option, that their lives were so messed up um, that they were in such a dead end or their circumstances were so hopeless that they had to do something extremely radical. And, you know, for them, when they would see these images of people hijacking planes, and which is, you know, was on TV all the time, the newspapers all the time, it kind of just got warmed its way into their heads, like this is a great radical way to completely overhaul my life in one fell swoop. Yeah, but, you know, I think, you know, to be careful here, desperation can mean, you know, many different things. Like, for example, like what was, what was, what was, Roger's desperate situation that this kind of... Well, he did have a desperate situation because he had a legal situation where he'd been bouncing a lot of checks. That's right. And he was, you know, living under this assumed name and he'd bounced about $1,800 worth of checks under this assumed name and had been arrested for it and was facing a court date. He was also AWOL from the Army. Um, so he had a lot of problems going on. Um, he had a situation where he had young twins, um, his, wife, his wife, and he had broken up. Um, he was in a he was in a really difficult place. He was also suffering from, um, you know, what we now identify as post traumatic stress disorder from his experience yes. in Vietnam. Um, so he had a, he he had a lot of problems at the time. He was a very troubled man. Yeah, yeah. Now you know he ends up in Algeria. There's another um, group that comes there as well. Uh, uh, from I guess they start in Philadelphia. But as you mentioned earlier, the main destination for hijackings was, of course, Cuba. What what did Castro think of this, and, and, and what was his response to the planes showing up? Castro wasn't too psyched about the planes showing up, and it, it always a little baffled me why people didn't get this message, because you know, after several dozen people had done this, news reports started to filter back that while there's no joy in Cuba, you end up, if you're lucky, living in this dormitory in South Havana where you get like a, a cot and like 40 paces a month and have to, have to take care of yourself, and it's just awful. 
And if they don't like you for some reason, they send you to a sugar harvesting gulag on the southern coast. Yeah. And I actually read a book um, by a man named Anthony Bryant who spent about almost 12 years in one of those gulags, and it just sounds like absolutely like a nightmare. Um, so I, I've never quite figured out why people kept on going to Cuba, thinking you know they would be the one to receive the parade in the middle of Havana, because <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know very few of them did, <laughs> very very few. So was Castro keeping the planes, or, or because in Algeria we have the plane be, the planes being returned to the to yeah, the airline. Yeah, no, Castro returned the planes. He would he would make money off the deal. Actually, he would charge the airlines for, for gas and for storage costs and all that. He would make a little money every time a plane got hijacked. But um, after a while, he just became really sick of it. Um, things were getting too crazy. Um, there were too many violent people. Too much violence happening on planes. Too many people saying they had bombs. Um, he didn't want any of that at Havana Airport. So it was really 1972. He just became absolutely disgusted with it and put his foot down. Yeah, the, you can see it sort of escalating too as we you know head out of the 60s into the early 70s. The demands seem to be going up for uh, ransom and also the monetary demands and also the the levels of violence on on both sides. It's, it's, and 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 what do you think kept sort of upping the stakes? Yeah, I think it was a, a kind of a response meets response kind of thing. Um, as you note, the FBI in about in the 19 in 1971 really started taking a much more violent tact with skyjackers, using snipers, using um, disguised agents, um, getting on board planes to, to shoot skyjackers. And of course, when you do that, you're going to have skyjackers who feel cornered and start shooting people as well. Um, so you did have a, you know, quite a great deal more violence as the epidemic neared its end in 72. Yeah. And was the, the fact that the money demands kept going up because they kept getting what they asked for? Yeah, I think it was pretty clear, um, you know, very quickly that no matter what you asked for, the, the airlines would give it to you. And from the airline's point of view, it actually made some sense um, in that they usually got the ransom back. Um, you know, it was very unlikely they wouldn't get the money back because, as you noted earlier, most of these people got caught. Um, they would yeah, jump yeah. out of the planes and, like, break their ankles and get caught, or they'd, someone, you know, they'd blab to somebody and get tracked down to their home. Um, or even if they went to Cuba, Cuba would return the money, or as you said, Algeria returned the money. So, you know, the odds of losing the money were, were relatively slim. Um, you know, I think the real problem became at the end, people were asking for such huge amounts of money that the airline just couldn't muster in, in short order. You know, asking a small commuter airline for $10 million, <laughs> they can't get their hands on that. <laughs> yeah, you have a great scene where you have everyone sort of at the, the staff of one of the airlines going to the Bank of Americas to try to withdraw as much as they possibly can before the banks yeah. close on a Friday. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, I did a lot of Freedom Information Act requests for the, for the book, and one of the things uh, they, the FBI sent me was they, they forced the, the, the airline to, or the bank to, to uh, photocopy every single bill that they gave. So I actually have like about 300 pages of just like photocopied bills wow. <laughs> that the FBI sent me with, you know, they had serial numbers on there. Wow, wow, wow. Well, let's, let's talk about some of the responses to, to these hijackings now. Obviously, the correct response was installing the x-ray machines and the, mm -hmm. the security managers, but the airlines just were totally opposed to this. And, and you know, I want to come back to this at the, at, the, at the very end, but they did seem to be of one mind that the only thing to do was, as you said, totally cooperate. Give them whatever they wanted. To, wherever you want to go, fine, we'll go there. You want to go to Algeria, we'll, we'll go there. You want $10 million, we'll, we'll, we'll do our best to, to get that for you right away. And, and, and the airlines really did not want to cooperate with the FBI. You know, they, they, why did they hate the idea of the FBI trying to sneak onto planes when they refueled or, or posing, as you said, as agents? Were they well, worried? the biggest thing they feared was the negative publicity surrounding a passenger being killed. Um, they were really scared of being associated with passenger deaths. Um, it was basically what they had going was a risk management strategy. Yeah. Right? So was, they figured that you know if we are going to if we have to put in all these metal detectors and fund all this new security personnel to search every single person that comes through, we're going to lose a lot of business. Uh, yeah. It's much financially uh, more financially wise for us to just endure, you know, thirty skyjackings a year. And we get the money back, and we have to pay maybe $20,000 to get the plane back or whatever it is. But in the long run, it's cheaper to just endure this, and no one gets hurt. Yeah, so, I mean, I understand that, and that seems to be, of course, the answer. It was it was the cheapest option. But when you talk about the, the 
negative publicity around the shootings. It seems like there were a couple instances that that where it was very successful. You have this amazing story of a a pilot taking out a hijacker and tossing his lifeless body onto the tarmac and saying, "This is how it should go." Right. Um, yeah, that, you know, that's a famous story that actually happened. There was someone flying a from. Um, it was a Washington, University of Washington student who was actually native of Vietnam who was flying back home after graduating, and he decided to hijack the plane to protest the war, and the, the pilot wasn't having it, and he knew that there was a, a passenger on board who'd come on board armed, and he actually arranged for the, that, that guy to shoot him, and then, uh, yeah, threw the body on the tarmac. He, he really wanted to make a statement. I mean, that was a time when pilots were just fed up um, yeah. with hijackers, with the airline's response, with the government's response. Sure. The pilots are the ones who are in danger, and they really wanted to make a statement. Yeah, but it also seemed that there was an instance when a passenger did end up dying in a shootout with the FBI, and it seemed that the public support, the public was on the side of the of the airlines and the FBI. It's like, oh yeah, well. That really, happened, that happened pretty. That was actually in San Francisco. That happened pretty late, um, pretty late in this. That there was a shootout where, where two passengers were wounded and, and one was killed. And yeah, at that time, it, this was like you know, towards the end of the mid, I guess midsummer, 1972. You know, you'd reached a, a point actually just a few weeks earlier where the the public was no longer could no longer tolerate this. I mean, the the risks and the craziness of the epidemic had reached a point where people were willing to you know endure some casualties <laughs> in the name of putting this to an end. It, you know, you t- you introduced us to an individual. I think he was. This was his second hijacked flight in a row that he was on. But you know, the public being fed up. Did what? What did they? What, did you get a sense of what they wanted? I mean, what what did they think should be done? The public. Well, the public, you know, had a lot of different ideas about this. But ultimately, you know, some people of them wanted. Um, I think one popular idea early on was to build a fake airport in Florida, and that you could tell hijackers it was Jose, Jose Marti Airport in Havana, and just like snag people when they got off the plane. Um, ultimately, people <laughs> ended up being much cooler with universal screening, physical screening, yeah. than, than you might, than the airlines certainly thought, and certainly compared to today, when you know, people are, are really up in arms about the, the invasiveness. You know, at that time, when it first went into effect in 1973, people welcomed this. I mean, people were waiting these long lines on the first day when they're trying to iron out the kinks of how to do this and people, you know, reported to interview them hoping for people to complain and whine about it and people were just like, I'm fine with this as long as it stops the hijacking. Sure, and again, so the, you have the airlines saying that, okay, we don't want to piss off our customers but we also don't want to pay for it and it, it clearly seems that what the, the real opposition, as you've said time and time again today, is the cost. It was right. They thought it would be too expensive. Were they right? They... I mean, ultimately, no, because they actually did find business throughout the 70s. In fact, their business increased. Um, I think I say in the book that they found out that passengers actually liked the idea of not being hijacked. Um, so people were willing to put up with that. I, I think a lot of it was that they just lagged in terms, the airlines lagged in terms of, of understanding, you know, how pissed off the public was about this. Yeah. I mean, it really took them quite some time to realize that things had gotten so out of hand that the public was, was frightened of flying. Yeah, but again, I don't even want to give them that much credit. It seems that they just were concerned about the cost. I mean, at least that's the sense I get from the way you tell the story. It's yeah, no, I mean, they were. I mean, that, that certainly was a miscalculation they made. I don't, I don't want to characterize it as they, that they wanted to put people's lives in jeopardy. I don't think they wanted to do that. But I think that they did not react quickly enough to mm. the um, growing severity of the crisis. Um, they kept on thinking about you know, things like cost without realizing that yeah. people's lives were in great Yeah, but hold, hold, hold on a second. There was a, you, you tell two, there was a couple times that this ends up in hearings, and because of the airline lobbying, they kill it. That's true. That's absolutely true. That, um, you know, in, in fact, even in 1972, you, got, you had um, a universal screening act that was, I think, uh, was first introduced in, in August in the Senate and was watered down um, thanks to airline lobbyists. So they, they certainly, you know, were uncomfortable with the idea uh, of doing yeah. this. I think a lot of it had to do with who was going to pay for it was another another fight they had. Um, it wasn't clear at that time who was going to end up paying for this. And the compromise they struck was that the airlines would pay for it, but they would be allowed to hire um, private contractors, contract out the security. So I don't know if, you know, it's, it's hard to remember this even, but before 9-11, you know, 
airport security was run by private security firms, yep. by you know, with baggage, with screeners making twelve thousand dollars a year. Yep, yep. But but how do we get to there? How does this story end? How does the the grand era of hijacking come to a close? How does the government get the airlines to to put in the security measures? What it really comes down to, there was a hijacking. Um, in Alabama in November of 1972, and I don't want to give too much away about it because it's, it's a, a crucial set piece in the book, but it was a situation where some hijackers threatened to crash a plane into a nuclear power, a nuclear reactor, um, and actually, you know, threatened to do it. I mean, it, it wasn't just a bluff. They actually were circling above the reactor at one point. And after that, it became clear to everyone involved um, that something radical had to be done they had to give in on this yeah yeah no it's 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 unfortunate and you know foreshadowing of course but it does you know remind us that the devastation from 9-11 you know could have could have even been worse you know had had those guys decided to crash into a power plant but you know um uh i want to wrap up with this um i I, you know we we talked a lot about the viral nature of these hijackings and i'm very i'm very curious you know at, now that you're finished with this book what kinds of mutations do you think this this idea this mentality went through you know you spent a lot of time you know thinking about this profile uh, the, the the real one may have been top secret but you kind of made your own and and i'm curious like where this idea of defining yourself on the world stage went to once it became impossible to 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 to, to be a hijacker yeah, I think that people found other ways to do it. I mean, I think people found other, you know, aberrant behaviors to participate in. Um, you know, the 70s had no shortage of, of mayhem, um, you know, kidnappings and bombings and all sorts of things like that. But, but you know, once they put in screening, um, skyjacking all of a sudden, you know, dropped to pretty much zero in 1973. And yeah, the thing yeah. about skyjacking, it didn't really age very well, right? Because after a few years, people look back on it. They couldn't believe we'd, we'd gone through this period, and, and what we people focus on was not, you know, the, the allure, uh, the, the glamour of it, but the futility of all these, these skyjackings that were stuck in the, the popular imagination. Yeah, yeah. Well, Brennan, we're out of time, and I, I, but I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, so the, the book is called The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking, and it's out tomorrow. All right. Thanks again, Brendan. Take care now. So, I don't recommend reading this book in line at the (laughs) the airport, though. Or at least take the cover off, because I'm afraid that it could lead to extra pat-downs. But, uh, yeah, thanks again to Brendan for, for coming in and talking about this. It's a, a, a great, great book. All right, our next guest is the British journalist Stuart Jeffries, who wrote an article last week for The Guardian UK in which he asked the question, Is Internet anonymity the height of chic? And uh, Stuart ponders this question because he came across a statement by Phoebe Philo, who is the designer behind the ultra-chic, ultra-expensive luxury brand Celine. And she said, the chicest thing is not existing on Google. So I rang Stuart up to ask him what it was about this line that got him thinking. You know, usually fashion designers don't say things which which sort of make me think philosophically, but this one did. She just said in this interview, um, the chicest thing uh, is when you don't exist on Google. And then she said, God, I would love to be that person. And she clearly isn't that person because she's you know, she's actually portraying herself as a victim of Google. You know, she's just this person who's everybody's got opinions about and writing stuff yeah. about that, that she doesn't like. Um, but that really set me thinking. The chicest thing, you know, what, what, you know, it's interesting the notion that it would be fashionable to be um, anonymous. Yeah, be, yeah. You know, you know what I mean? So r- rather, you know, the, the usual idea is that to, to, to be fashionable, you've got to be at least be known by a few people. Oh, you know, millions! You know, just millions, that, you know. 
you know, the, the fashionablest people, the chicest people are the ones with, you know, 7 million Twitter followers. I mean... Well, exactly, you know. I mean, th- this, that's right. You know, you, you think, well, you know, Justin Bieber, I suppose, amongst his fan base, is the most fashionable um, icon in the world. And he is, you know, he's got the most number of Twitter followers. And one thinks, therefore, that people who've got the most number of Twitter followers are chic, fashionable. So she just turns this whole thing on, 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 on its head and yeah. makes you think, well... Oh yeah, well, wouldn't it be wonderful if that were the case? And then just to explore it, well, does it or does it make any sense at all? You know, it, does it make sense to, to to disappear from an online presence? Is it desirable? Um, and all that. But what what it made me think is, you know, you you, th- you normally think the people who 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 want to make themselves ungoogleable are people who you know spend their evenings sitting on porches with you know shotguns across their knees. And sure, want, sure. You know, they want to withdraw from uh, society and you know don't pay the taxes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but that, that, you know, I, I have to say when I when I saw this piece and I and I saw what she said, you know, that I had this joke with my friends before I got off Facebook about a year and a half ago <laughs> that all of the best people I knew, like the really the coolest people I knew, the chicest people I knew, were not on <laughs> Facebook. You that's know? right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, but uh, you know, there's there's also this sort of online trend of people to to write memoirs about you know how I detoxed from Facebook and all that. So so I think there are a lot of, a lot of people who get a lot of cachet from withdrawing from it. And and and, you know, and, and that's that, that's a sort of insight into the world. The possible you know if there is an anonymity chic, then I think that, that that's the way into it. These recovering Facebook addicts. And, yeah, you know. yeah. We'll we'll come back to that in a second though. But I wanna I wanna okay. just stick with the the sort of the the thought experiment here that you know that you sort yeah. of delve into here like you, it makes you th- rethink the idea of social capital i mean because if we think about what you know being online and having seven million followers or being uh, popular on twitter it's about having social capital and this idea of anonymity uh chic sort of goes against that in other it's words it's wonderful it, isn't it yeah, it's, it's a it's a real anti zeitgeist thing. The, the zeitgeist is is completely the opposite. You know, it's the the, the noisiest people are, are the most successful. The, the people who make the most online clamor are the most successful. And then you know, just to say, what? Well, hey, hold on, maybe the opposite's the case. You know, and and the, the people who who are with, withdrawing from the world or withdrawing, you know, they, they have the most social capital. Not not just that they're they're leading more, you know, they're, they're leading the more true lives, but they're actually they've got more social capital. It's really weird, isn't it? It's a really yeah, really weird idea. I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not just a weird idea. It, it one that gives you the opportunity to rethink the very premise of social capital. I mean, you seem to suggest that some of the grand pronouncements that have been made about social capital might just be, well, overhyped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the, the, the Internet evangelists, you know, argued about four or five years ago. You know, I'm talking to think about people like Clay Shirky. Uh-huh. You know, r- rightly drawing attention to the possibility of the, of, of the Internet, bringing people together, you know, you'd have these sort of mothers who would be brought together in, in like-minded sort of social groups. You'd be fermenting revolutions in Belarus and all these kind of wonderful things would be possible. And, you know, they kind of haven't happened really. You know, to, to a great extent what's happened is that we spend a lot of time online, you know, liking and unliking or adjusting our Facebook state. So we're doing a lot of work to bankroll our, our social capital, to make, you know, to, to ring fence ourselves, to make ourselves seem bigger and more, um, you know, more sociable than we really are. And so, yeah, actually, this thought experiment is helpful because it, it makes you think, well, actually, maybe this has just gone slightly the wrong way. We, you know, we, we're doing lots of fatuous things for a start. And so maybe this aim of sociability and this endless 24-7 sociability isn't really, you know, what you want to be doing, nor is it the sort of, sort of thing which, which, which actually gives you much clout with other people, really. Yeah, yeah. No, no, we, we've, we all know that the social sharing world rewards extroverts and doesn't really do much for introverts. But it's also that status sort of is, dis, is you know, demonstrated by, you know, people talking about, oh, here I'm always at the airport again, the humble bragging, like, oh, on another airplane again to another exotic That's location. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But, you know, the, the things, you know, as a journalist now, you, you, if, if you don't have a Twitter feed and you don't want tweeting all the time, and I don't, you know, I don't, and... I probably don't because I haven't got the. I don't really want to have the time to do it, you know. Um, and if you do, but if you don't have that, and I've sat around, you know, dinner with people and sort of saying, you know, boy, you don't have, you know, you suddenly become this pariah, you know, you just yeah. become absolute because you you should be doing it, and 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 also you should be. This is the this is the other thing really. Uh, you should be making a brand of yourself, and you can use Twitter to make yourself a brand. So you're making yourself into something that you're not. 
you know, you, you know, you're stopping being a human being and you're making yourself into a commodity, a sort of product, yes, really. Yes. And, as, and as a professional journalist, that makes sense. You know, I've got friends who do do what I can't bear to do, which is, you know, they're going off to interview somebody and they'll 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 tweet their mates and say. Um, or you know, tweet their followers, not on their mates, but tweet, tweet them and, and, and say, "Look, I'm interviewing this guy. Has anybody got any questions for them?" You know, I and know. Uh, and I think, well, you know what? I want to ask those questions. I want to come up with the questions. I want to be the first. <laughs> to be I don't want. I don't want other people. You know, I I I, I, I want. I don't want to be the conduit to these for these people because, yeah, you know. So there's all, all that, and, and so you know, the, 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 any social capital that you have seems to me to board. I mean, not always, but you know, there's an element to it. Become a little bit bogus, I think. Yeah, well, this, it seems to me that this is why the idea of anonymity chic uh, uh, is impressive to you because it, it sort of turns the idea on its head that the more overbearing you are online, that the more social capital you will get. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and this fits fits into a lot of things that are going on, a lot of publishing trends that are going on at the moment. You know, there's this, there's a, mem- a French memoir uh, here that's really popular. This guy who just went to live in Siberia for six months, you know, he's, he's just got away from the internet. He got away from everything. I mean, he probably yeah. came back and you know adjusted his Facebook status and sort of you know watched everything he, he taped on his hard drive. But you know, but, but it, it, there's a fantasy. There's a, there's a yeah. fantasy of withdrawing from this irksome world, which I think plays really strongly to a lot of people at the moment. Sure. And, but that's having it both ways. We have a guy here in America who just spent a year offline, and I'm sure he's got a big book contract coming out. <laughs> that's right. That's the, that's the thing to do. I mean, a few years ago, it was that thing, you know, spending, I, I spent a year reading the Bible, you know, and you, and you get a book. You better get a book contract on that. Now, you know, that, that's, that's, what, that's what happens now. People just do this stuff, where, you know, they're, they're actually, it's probably actually false conscious. And what, what they're doing is doing what they think is going to get them a book contract. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Stuart, I think I have more respect for the person who's actually buying the thousands of Twitter <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right, Dina. That's right. But, but I do think that there's there's becoming a greater awareness in people about just how rubbish this whole social capital thing is, and and that it could be fixed. You know, these sort of web metrics, like looking at someone who has a lot of followers as being sort of an automatic sign that oh, this m- person must be in part important. I think people are starting to wake up to the fact, or or are they that that this might not exactly be true. Well, some yeah, I, I think sometimes you, you, you can just you know you look at somebody's tw- tweet and think, what the hell are you doing with your life? You know, I, 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 know, I wrote I wrote about it, and there was this guy, he's very popular here, Stephen Fry. He, he, he you yeah. know, he's got lots of online followers, and he checked into this hotel room in St. Petersburg, and he, he before he'd unpacked, you know, he, he, he'd sort of sent a shot of he tweeted a shot of his bed, and a view from his hotel room. You think, well, you know. Why don't you just unpack and go out and see the city first? You know, just you know, it just seemed nuts. It just seemed and and not beyond nuts. Actually, it just seemed you know a bit disturbing what it says about the kind of person who needs to do that kind of thing in order to get a lot of presumably you know a, a lot a lot of uh, you know social capital. They think they're getting social capital from doing yeah. something like that, but actually they're living in a really odd, almost narcissistic way, I guess. Yeah, but Stuart, you know, I, I was waiting around for you to cycle home. I could have tweeted out, hey, I'm going to talk to Stuart Jeffries, the guy who wrote the <laughs> on Google. Any questions for him? I mean, That's you right, know, yeah. I was sitting here waiting for you, and, and here you and I are <laughs> griping about these people. But, you know, the audience kind of does love these these opportunities to sort of participate and be a part of the story. I mean, these things are working, to drop the cynicism for a second, because people enjoy yeah. doing them. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I'm probably saying I'm probably coming to it from this perspective because I am a jaded old school journalist, in, 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 and I can't bear the thought, in a way, that the um, you know means of communication are being taken over by people who aren't journalists. You know, uh... and, and this is exactly what Clay Shirky was saying four or five years ago. He was saying that uh, you know that journalists are, are like you know they're, they're like the um, scribes before the printing press came. You know, they're, they're just this sort of blo- they're a blockage in the free flow of information. And, I th- and, and the worst thing about that was, I thought he was kind of right, you know, and it kind of disturbed me that that was... And I don't like the idea that, um, you know, I don't like that. This is a terrible thing to admit. I don't like the idea that everybody can pitch in and, and, and have their opinion. And I feel as though I want to be in control of that. And, and maybe, maybe it's just my old school sort of... Uh, I can't best be made obsolete, which <laughs> is what's making me so uh, vexed about all this. You, know, you need your own country. I think you're like one of those guys. I think you may have gone into the wrong business here. I mean, I mean but I know I should have been a dictator. I know. I know. <laughs> There's, you know, one other aspect to this though, that I find that perhaps is even more upsetting, and that is sort of the the 
extroverts being rewarded and the introverts sort of not having a place. And again, this isn't social media's fault. You know, it's not like they're supposed to create something for introverts. But at the same time, I, I think it's undeniable that there this is an issue. I mean, there it's becoming harder and harder for people who may have who may be introverts to sort of find their way in this in this kind of market. Well, you, you find it all the time. I mean, you know, even before the internet existed, you, you know, you go to office meetings, and um, you know, you, you, the people who may be introverted people may have had said something to say, to, may have had something to contribute, a brilliant idea to contribute, but that forum um, didn't exist at an office meeting. I remember, you know, going to ideas meetings at, at newspapers, and people would come up to me afterwards and say, "I didn't say anything there, but I've got this idea," and you think, "Well, why didn't you say something at that meeting? It's because you're too frightened." And, but and, and then. The the, the um, sort of social media is that writ large, you know, and in 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 a, in a kind of terrible way, you know. So how do the quiet people? How do the introverts? Oh, well, they're there. That's the thing. Like, <laughs> if you look, if you look on Twitter, you'll find bazillions of people who have sent like sixty thousand tweets out into the world and have like maybe four people listening. To them. Oh no, I'm so sorry for them. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you could go out and follow them and follow along if you'd like, but uh, I, I don't know. I've got, I've got a lot to do. My... That's, that's right. Also, you don't want to be the person who's like a pity follower, really. You know, there's no. no way to live. <laughs> no, no, no. But you talk about how this dream of uh, online. Anonymity chic sort of revives this old romantic hope that we could sort of disappear, like J.D. Yeah. Salinger, right? From you know, yeah. but at the same time, I think that what he did sort of uh, you know only heightened this mystique about him, right? When someone withdraws and sort of becomes unavailable to the press, you know, in the offline world, like everyone still kind of notices, but. It seems like there's a paradox here that, you know, if yeah. the more you're just going to be anonymous, you'll just be anonymous. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, he, the thing is, he, he, he cornered the market in that anonymity um, value, I suppose, yes. in the sense that, you know, because he got, he, he, he got there and everybody was t- titillated by that. And if, if, anybody, if anybody else does that, they'll just think, oh, that's a bit hacky. You know, <laughs> you know he, he just did it. And you're, well, you're, you're doing the same thing, you know. Um, so it was a brilliant, uh, you know, clearly he didn't do it for this reason, but one suspects. He didn't do it because it was a brilliant brilliant marketing ploy but i guess these publishers and his agents probably thought well you know actually this is this could play you know it, it could work this little you know this could work into uh, selling a few more copies of franny and zui and stuff but you know and and, and then though the, the, there's the the other side to that is is um people who have who've, who seem to have established themselves uh, you know as, as record as musicians or novelists or whatever with names that are uh, that are pretty hard to google yes um what does that you know? What what are they? What they're you know? Like there's this band in, in New York um, called Three Exclamation Points. You know, oh, I think yeah. they're called they're called Click 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 or Bang Bang Bang. Um, I think I think that's what you call them anyway. You know, and I don't know what their record company thinks about that, but there must be some interesting conversations where they say, you know, maybe you should just sort of think about calling yourself something. You know, I don't know, something, something different, just <laughs> just so people can Google you for crying out loud. You know, and the same. And, and, and there's an interesting interview with um, I read with uh, A.M. Holmes recently, in which she said, uh, you know, she's very interested in being offline and and, and all of this. And I was, uh, and I thought, well, that's interesting. I'll see if I can find some more about A.M. Holmes. So I started googling her name. Uh, to find out a bit more about that, you know, her her, her offline um, fantasies, and it's really hard to to, to Google A M Holmes because her name is spelled A M H uh, O M E S. So if you if you Google her, you just get a you know you'll get real estate yeah. in Texas and stuff like that. It's like, you know or something like that, and, uh, and and so she doesn't exist. So I don't know. Maybe that's the future. Maybe that's that's if you want to make yourself ungoogleable, just change your name to something that's just well. It, it, used, it used to be for people who have common names that you know this was frustrating because to build your own brand you needed to sort of find a way to make yourself stand out over say all of the Stuart Jeffries and be the one Stuart Jeffries that you you wanted to sort of follow and read his articles. Are you saying though that that we might be looking at a shift where people are sort of getting excited of the fact that they they sort of are lost in the flow of the other people with the same names? I guess it's, a, it, you know, we all look for difference to, to make ourselves interesting. And, and, and suddenly, you know, that is, a, that is the new thing to make yourself different. You know, every, in, a, in, a, in a world where everybody, you know, um, tweets and amasses followers, I, I, you know, the, the, the interesting thing to do is to do the opposite, I guess, you know. <laughs> But, you know, let's just, you know, close here with that. There is a you know, pretty serious philosophical paradox here that, that if we're going to address, if to be chic is to be anonymous, how will anyone know 
that you're seeing. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? It's like it's, it's the one hand clapping sort of paradox. Yes. Yeah. Who, know, who knows? Who knows? Exactly. You know, and I don't, you know, I don't know that uh, the, the woman who drew me into this in the first place, Phoebe Philo, whether she really, really does want to be anonymous. I think she probably wants to dally with that, you know, and, and titillate us with the thought that she might disappear into, into a, you know, an ungoogleable world. You know, really, I, I suspect there are very, very few people who want to disappear like that or who really want to become anonymous. Or if they do, they haven't really thought through the consequences of doing so you know, it's it's a world where nobody knows you, you know. <laughs> and everybody wants to be known by somebody, you'd have thought. Well, thanks so much for coming on the program. Hey, no problem. That was great fun. Thank you. Thank you, Benjamin. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks once again to Stuart Jeffries and to Brendan Corner and to Andrea Salenzi for helping out with the program today and every week. You can find archives of the show at WFMU.org. And if you're missing the old format of TMI, well, check out my other podcast, The Theory of Everything. All of the TMI regulars and crazy adventures can be found there at toe.prx.org. You're listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Up next, Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show.
listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette radio show. You just heard right there, brand new from Baldy Long Hair Records. Thanks, Baldy. Another amazing release, a cassette release. The band Inertia, the tune Illiteracy, brand new cassette on Baldy Long Hair Records. Today on the Nardwar to Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with from Leeds, England, Alt J. To get you ready for Alt J, thought I would play you something by one of their favorite bands, The Watersons. Gonna hear 30 Foot Trailer. But to begin, right now, here's The Kazanitz cats singing orchestral circus with joey quick small then the watersons then an interview with all on the nardwar the human serviette radio show on wfm you Tinker the 
gypsy, the traveling man. Farewell to the thirty foot trailer. Farewell to the besoms of heather and broom. Farewell to the creel and the basket. For the folks of today, they would far sooner pay for a thing that's been made out of plastic. Farewell to the tent and the old caravan To the tinker, the gypsy, the travelling man Farewell to the thirty-foot trailer Farewell to the pony, the cob and the mare Why the reins and the harness are idle You don't need a strap when you're breaking up scrap so farewell to the bits and the bridle Farewell to the tent and the old caravan To the tinker, the gypsy, the travelling man Farewell to the thirty-foot trailer Farewell to the fields where we've sweated and toiled At pulling and showing and lifting Soon are machines and there's trouble and coins And the menfolk had better be shifting Farewell to the tent and the old caravan To the tinker, the gypsy, the travelling man and Farewell to the thirty-foot trailer Who are you? We're Alt-J, I'm Gwil Will, could you please introduce Alt-J? Uh, this is Gus. Hello. Hello. And then Joe. Hello. And then Tom. Hello. Hello, Alt-J. Hello. <laughs> welcome to Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Thank you for the welcome. Right off the bat, I have a gift for you guys. Yes. yes. <laughs> and what the gift is, is it's a Dr. Dre 12-inch. Oh, yeah. oh, Excellent. Nice. Now, what's the connection between Alt-J and Dr. Dre? Well, you that's your first album you ever bought. 2001 was the first album I ever bought. And um, we have a Dr. Dre mashup kind of cover that we play in our set at the moment. There's a lot of connections. And we also said famously that we wanted him to produce our next album. And then a lot of people 